Well, good afternoon. No, we'll leave that open. And uh, welcome to the equipping series, session number four, in which we will conclude lesson number three, which is Bible study methods and historical literal methodology. Before we start, I'd just like to read uh, a psalm with you, Psalm 119. I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but I just want to read part of the psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies and who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, and keeping that I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my ears I declare all the rules of your mouth, and the way of my testimonies I delight as much as it is in all riches. I will meditate upon your precepts and fix your eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. First 16 verses of Psalm 119. As I've read that, what is something that you notice about the reading of those 16 verses? If you were to start to try and interpret what the psalm writer is saying, what are some of the things that you notice? I'll give you a couple of minutes just to look at that. Okay, so we're just looking at Psalm 119. We've read those first 16 verses. Just uh, interact with me. What, What type of writing is it? Poetry. Poetry. Well done. What sort of poetry? Hebrew poetry. Yeah, Hebrew poetry, because it's in the Old Testament. It's a good observation. So when you look through those first 16 verses, you see a lot of, lot of parallelism, don't you? So you see, uh, for instance, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. It's a little parallel couplet. Okay, it states one thing, you're blessed if you walk in the way of the Lord, and then it links the next thing, who walk. So walk and way in this parallelism are linked. And who walk in the law of the Lord. You see how that works? As you work through those 16 verses, you will see... Some parallelism come out, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. But, but I just thought I'd start with looking at a little bit of Hebrew poetry, trying to put what we're talking about into some context. What else do you notice? Is there anything that repeats itself often in these first 16 verses of the sample? Just be obedient to what it says. Yeah, that's what it is. It repeats. Is there anything that, that causes you to... Yeah, obedience is great, but what is the one word or one concept which is 
consistently coming through these first 16 verses. Precepts, statutes, <coughs> commandments. Is that the idea? Yeah. That's Blessings and benefits of doing it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like what Justin has said, blessings of what to do, that's, that's what it's charging us to do, but it's talking about precepts, statutes, righteous rules, commandments, testimonies, law of the Lord, according to your word. Decrease. What's that? Decrease. Mm. Yeah. So, as you get a flavour for those first 16 verses, what is central in the poetry? Commandments. God's word, God's law, God's statutes, God's rules. As the psalmist has written this psalm, he is trying to impact the reader. And if you read the whole psalm, you would find that something relating to God's law, God's word, God's statutes, God's command occurs in probably 95% of the, of the whole psalm. There's 176 verses there. So you, if you were an honest and good biblical interpreter and you're going to be sharing this particular psalm with, with people, whether it's in a preaching context, whether it's in a discipleship context, whether it's just a standard Bible study, the key to understanding the psalm is the emphasis that the psalmist puts on God's word and obedience. So yeah, you sort of get that a little bit as we, we go through it. So that's just a little exercise just to whet your appetite as we go into today. Because it's uh, poetry, it's still real, it's still true, and it's still um, appropriate for us to apply our lives. Absolutely, because this is, this is somebody has already applied it to their lives, right? as they've written and thought through the poetry. It's inspired by God's word. We talk about inspiration. It's still inspired by the Spirit of God. As he's meditated upon God's word, he's just overflowed with praise. And, and there's another really wonderful thing as you look through Psalm 119. You notice the divisions. There's 22 divisions. 22 verses, if you like, to Psalm 119. What are all those... Um, particular divisions mean, you think? Might have the alphabet from last time? Yeah. yeah. We've got last time. What are they? The Hebrew alphabet, aren't they? It's the Hebrew alphabet. So the psalmist has actually arranged his psalm according to every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, He, Wa, Wa. They're all letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and that's the way he's arranged his poem. So that becomes significant in the way when you start unfolding and interpreting it. Why has he done that? Why is he communicating? These are the types of questions you ask of the text as you uh, work into it. Excellent. All right, we will now um, start the... The lesson, so we're on lesson uh, three, as I said, looking at completing the Bible study methods and historical literal methodology. Last time we started this lesson, we uh, 
We talked about why is, why is it important to actually even think about biblical interpretation. And we looked at uh, the tensions in biblical interpretation. We touched briefly on what exegesis and eisegesis is. Can someone remember what the two are? Eisegesis is when you're putting yourself... Eisegesis is when you're putting stuff into the text that you want to bring to it. Exegesis is when you're trying to get info out of the text that you think the text is saying. Correct. Correct. So eisegesis tends to impose your experience upon the Bible. Okay, you have a wonderful experience, and you may say, oh, that experience was so wonderful, therefore it must be from God, it must be good. And I'm going to go find somewhere in the, in the Word of God to actually substantiate my experience. And uh, therefore, when that happens, you are eisegeting into the text uh, from a biblical interpretation perspective. So what would that mean? Me, as I say, as a preacher, I'd come and maybe uh, during the week I've had a series of events occur. Maybe I've, I've been involved in a car accident, uh, smashed up a rib or something, and uh, very painful. And so therefore the next Sunday I preach and I preach on the pain of the cross. And I've preached on the pain of the cross based on the pain in my rib and smashed in the car. That would be eisegeting into the text. It would be, as you can see, a pretty poor way of going at a biblical interpretation. Shouldn't preaching on Adam. The rib, you know. yeah, it, should, it should be Adam. But, but you know what I mean? So that, that's, and it's been a... I would say in the last 70 or 80 years, a very prominent way of preaching. But is that actually changing the interpretation of the text or just choosing the topic that you talk about? It can change the interpretation as well. So it can. Case, it, can be, it can be a danger in that. So in that case, you're just taking an angle on the cross because of your pain, but not necessarily changing. Yeah, in that example, correct. But you can also see how the example could go and start superimposing upon the text something that's not sitting in the text. So, so it's your experience and your, your view is imposed over the top of actually what the text is trying to teach. It okay. usually starts when someone reads something and then they say, I feel this is saying this to me. It's usually a yes. bad sign that you're going to get some bad theology. Usually, well, when someone quotes from God direct, it's pretty hard to argue. But that's some people do that to, to push a point. I would say, you know, God told me, or you know, we, we don't get it too much in our church, but yeah. or just by reading some texts and just you know, think, I feel this is what God's saying, or I feel this is what's saying to me. Usually, his eyes in work. Usually. Okay, so you clearly understand the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. As a, um, as a, a rule, we're going to follow through hermeneutically. We're, we're interested in exegesis. Right. 
exegesis is the foundation of the pyramid when it comes to biblical interpretation. If you asked to draw a pyramid, if I had a whiteboard here, I'd have a, a pyramid like this. Right. On the very base level of that pyramid, the foundation to all our theology, all we know about God, is exegeting the text. Then comes historical theology, so what have past saints said about exegeting the text? Then comes biblical theology, what are the, the themes that run concurrently through the Bible to give us a view a progressive view of what God is doing. You could use um, redemption as that. Very simply, we fell. Skins were taken of a dead animal to cover the sin. And you have Isaac, redemption. You have uh, the Exodus as a, a redemption. And finally, you get the cross as the ultimate redemption. So that's a biblical theology of redemption going through the scriptures. So biblical theology there, and then that moves into your systematic theology, at the, the crown of the pyramid, if you like. So we're really, in hermeneutics, we're really interested in what does the text say. That's the main question we're ask, asking and answering. What does the text say? And how does that eventually apply to, to you and I? When I say something like the unity and diversity of Scripture, what do you understand that term as? Have you ever heard that term before? Unity, you meaning you can look at various different books in the Bible and, and they're all aligned in some way, even though they're written by Yep. And where does that unity come from? It comes from the Spirit of God who's moved men, carried them along to provide inspiration to write. So there's a, there's a unity in the Scripture. But there's also a diversity. What do I mean by diversity? Different parts read differently because of the different authors. Yep. Different, different experiences, different historical times. Okay. The Bible wasn't all written on one day. It spans a period of time. There's different genres used. We're going to use the word genre a lot. Does, anyone, does everyone understand what a genre is? Explain to me. Crystal, what's a genre? Type of writing. Yeah. Historical narrative and poetry. Yeah. 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 Excellent. It's also, genre is also used in musical terms, isn't it? Different types of genre for music. It's a more contemporary view. But we'll use it in a language sense. Uh, the different languages the Bible has been written in. Not the primary language of Hebrew, Aramaic and Koinonia, but the, the type of uh, language genre. So that's the diversity. The unity and the diversity of Scripture. And that plays an important part when you want to start understanding things exegetically. You can't go to historical narrative and use the same rules of interpretation as you would with apocalyptic. Okay? Type literature. So you need to be able to determine very quickly what type of 
genre you are reading when it comes to being a student and an interpreter of God's word. And finally, text and its context is, is, is vitally important. Text and context. If you were to say to me, what is the major stone of exegetical work, it's those two things, text and context. We had an example of it this morning, didn't we, when uh, Mike preached on, uh, I am the good shepherd. He went to 21, 10, 21, where it talked about blindness. And then immediately that was a key to say, ha, huh, what is the context of Jesus' instruction to the Pharisees? It's the story of the blind beggar. And he drew the context together. So that was just a very you know, relevant example of why context is important. If you didn't pick that key up, you'd miss out on a lot of information. A lot of information of what's going on in that dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. And because you know, immediately after that, it's a time of dedication, it's a time of the Festival of Lights, and they go pick up stones to stone him because he's inferring I am the same as the Father. So there's ongoing dialogue that occurs and you've got to pull that context into that discourse to understand I've got a quote for you, and you might want to write this down. I think it's a very good quote by uh, Gerald Bray. The church today must remember that the text of Scripture stands in creative tension over against the context of the world. Read that again so you can write it down. The church today must remember that the text of Scripture stands in creative tension over against the context of the world in which it was produced and to which it now speaks. In this way alone, its message likely to be heard in our time as it was heard in the past. It's quite a powerful quote when we're talking about this context, text, this bridging this historical gap, because you know we have scriptures that are written 2,000 years ago. We live in the 21st century. And... We must bridge this gap. This word is as live and as active today as it was to those it was originally intended for. What would you say is a good way to help you find out the context of a time or passage? We'll work through that. That's uh, over the next several weeks, actually. Yeah, we're not going to leave that question alone. We're just building the bridge. We're just starting the hermeneutical process after organising our inerrancy stuff, our canonisation stuff. Now we're starting to build some bridges in, in uh, what is hermeneutics. Okay, so hermeneutics. A definition of hermeneutics. Does anyone have a definition of hermeneutics? 
Sorry, if I guess. Okay, we'll, we'll give it a go. I mean, a good definition is this, it's an area of study that uh, gives us principles or methods uh, for interpreting an, an author's meaning. So, an area of study that gives principles or methods for interpreting an author's meaning. So hermeneutics, we're going to go and we're going to grab, we'll just grab a random book, Second Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of Thessalonica in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The author is identified as Paul, Silas and Timothy. Okay. Initially in that first verse. To a church in Thessalonica, we know a little bit about this church. But hermeneutics is going to go and say, okay, I'm going to study Second Thessalonians. I'm going to look at the principles or I'm going to, have, I'm going to apply some principles and methods that are going to try and tell me why did he write this letter. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to say, okay, as you write that letter, as we exegete the text, how do I bridge that between then and now to the process of historical theology, biblical theology, systematic theology? That's the way it sort of works. But there is a relationship between hermeneutics and exegesis and contextualization. I use the word contextualization as context. We want to contextualize the text from there to now. That's contextualization. So, what's the relationship between hermeneutics, this, this method and principles, exegesis, applying into the text, and contextualization? Um, Some will say that there's a, a, a very strong, strong relationship between exegesis and contextualization. Some will say there's a very strong, interchangeable relationship between hermeneutics and exegesis. Uh, so I'm not going to make a call either way. But it's an important question to keep in the back of your mind. How does hermeneutics relate to these two aspects of what we do every day? So the nature of hermeneutics, I think you've got that there, haven't you? The nature of hermeneutics. So when you say contextualisation, is that that's talking about like what, um, um, I mean, um, advice. Mike, yeah. Yeah, and, and so he, was, he talked about Jesus healing the blind man and then and, and what came after him. So put it in the context there. But is it, it's also the culture of the day. Contextualization is bringing, it's, it's a, is bringing it from that culture. Okay, so the original hearers of the book of John 
we're receiving a, a theological treatise by John about the works of Jesus. So they, they would have, they would have, whether it was, a, it was probably a formed church, they, they seen this historical piece. It meant something completely different to them than what it may mean to you and I. Now, there'll be things in there that we may miss because we're not first century Christian. Right? We need to understand that. So that's that's the exegesis. That's getting in and diving. And um, to get to us, to contextualise it to us, we've got to say, well, what are the principles in there that actually now apply here and now? So a bad contextual viewpoint. We yep. say the reformers, looking through the reformers, reformers' context and looking at that passage wouldn't be a great way to go. It's not a Catholic context, it's not a church father's context, but it's a Jewish context or the Greek context. Well, it's a, it's a historical, literal, grammatical approach. That's where we're going with this hermeneutics. We want to understand originally the history. We want to understand originally what was the author's original intent to his audience before we start drawing principles for us here and now. Because there will be principles that we'll draw out. For instance, I am the good shepherd. The principle is that, yes, the good shepherd has laid down his life for his sheep in the first century as well as the 21st century. That's a really easy bridge to, to, to go, right? Really easy bridge. Okay, Christ is the same atoning sacrifice for you in the first century as he is for you and I in the 21st century. That's not a difficult bridge to cross. But there are some more difficult bridges to cross at times as we look at that. So, so when, when Mark was talking this morning, it was both like breadth and depth. So yep. he was, Brett, he was going, okay, Jesus here, fly man, and how that related to the passage here. So, so the passage beforehand was breadth and uh, both. So we're, the, we're in the scripture and then the story sits. But he also gave some, some information on the, the actual... Um, the day of what, what was meant to be a shepherd, which is totally different to how we look at a shepherd today. Yep. You know, who would just um, leave the sheep out there and, <clears throat> in the fields and truck them around and, yep. and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, Mike actually didn't do that today. He didn't clearly, he didn't clearly state, but that's, that's a way he could have gone. He could have said, okay, do you know about a, a, a first century shepherd and how they shepherd their sheep? Okay. So a little bit about, a bit about, about the, being the door, being the door across the gate, but the um, you know there they have. I've seen this in Israel. We went uh, through through Israel and we saw some shepherds, and they still do it today. They'll just call a funny sounding call, and the sheep will prick their ears up and follow them. Know his voice. You know the sheep in Australia and New Zealand know the dog's voice. I don't know, you or my voice is a shepherd. All they know is the, the yapping dog who's driving them. But there, the, the, the picture is that the shepherd is walks ahead, the sheep walk behind. So, you know, for us to do a good job contextually of that particular text and that particular metaphor, you need to explain that and then say, hey, this is different. But you get the principle, don't you? The principle is that he is the good shepherd and he's always leading us. We should know his voice. Do you know his voice? Because he lays 
this life down for you. So, you know, that would be a way you could just grab that as, and, and bring the... Because you know, the, the first century church, the first century Christian, when they heard that, they would have a completely different view in their mind of what a shepherd is. That's where you've got to bridge it into context. Yeah. Okay. Good questions. And, and as we go through, I want to give you... Uh, yeah, we'll be talking about this a lot, this whole context, context, how we get from the historical into 21st century and back to principle. So the nature of hermeneutics, it's a science... Uh, there's logical and critical methodology involved as you approach the text. And these are two words which we will explain next uh, time we meet, semantics and linguistics. as part of the scientific approach to hermeneutics. Semantics and linguistics. So there is a logical and critical methodology to your approach. Uh, I mentioned a book, and if you guys are really interested in this, I would highly... It's in your uh, bibliography, which is... In the bibliography, I'd put a little star against Stenberger. Andreas, an invitation to biblical interpretation, exploring the triad of history, literature, and theology. The particular diagram you have on there is a summary of his 700-page book. Okay, so it is a it is a very good work, but it's very readable. It's not a high-faluting critical analysis, unlike Osborne, which is the third one you have there. It's a, quite a technical. Uh, textbook that one but if you're really interested in, in this type of stuff that's a book you'd need on your library and you could just work through it and it's going to give you lots more information than what I'm giving you so part of it so hermeneutics is a, a science it's an art uh, it's an art because it requires interpretation not that we just imagine something and say that's what the text is saying. Okay, that would be eisegesis. But you need to be, especially in getting this contextualization, you have to be creative. Not the right word, but you have to be attuned to what the culture of the day is and the culture of then was, as much as you can to bridge the gap, to bridge between two worlds. So nature is a science. It's an art. And finally, it's a spiritual act. I think we, we can never come to the text of Scripture. We can never come to wanting to understand more about the Bible without much prayer, without much examination of yourself, confession of sin, contemplation about the greatness of God. If you don't have these three things in balance, then it would just become an academic pursuit. 
it is a spiritual act. And, you know, every one of us has the Spirit of God within us to illuminate and to enlighten Scripture. All I want to give you over the next few weeks is just some tools to help you to be consistent with your interpretation. Okay, there's three levels of meaning in the hermeneutical enterprise. What it meant to them, what it means to me, and sharing with you what it means. So it's pretty simple. We've been talking about this. Uh, The original context of Scripture had a meaning to the original audience. When the, the people of Israel received the law, Received the creation story of Genesis 1, it would have had a deeper impact for them than it was for you and I. The truth of the message doesn't change, but it would have had a significant meaning. Here's a people who have been in bondage and slavery for 430 years, where synchronism was, was awry. They were, they were probably influenced heavily by the worship of Egyptian gods and things like that. That was the culture they were in. And all of a sudden, Moses writes by the inspiration of God, in the beginning God, and he created everything in six, seven days. Six days. So, there's three levels of meaning. It's... What it meant to them is the third person, it's the original context. What it means to me is becomes the first person. And sharing with you is second person, if you like it. Uh, that's how it, how it works. If your sole focus was what it means to them, what would be the danger of that? Just be a textbook. If you yeah. That's right, it would just be scholars. Just be scholarly. If you're so focused on is what it means to me, what would, what would happen then? You make it safe and you try and you probably get the wrong message to Yeah. Can you think of anyone in church history where they've taken this approach? There's a certain bunch of folks that did this. All they were concerned about was what it meant to them devotionally. So what it means to... Meant to them is sorry, exegesis. What it means to me is devotional. It's a devotional pursuit. You think of uh, a group of people where that was the sole focus. Quakers. Go further back. Have you heard of the Desert Fathers? Oh, haven't you? Oh, neat. We're going to, we're going to talk about Desert Fathers. <laughs> These are blokes in about the third um, and fourth century that decided they wanted to be separated from the world. So they took their scriptures with them and they sat in poles in the middle of the desert, up a pole in the middle of the desert. Monastic fathers, you may have heard them as. Uh, monasteries are set up on the basis of this type of devotional life. We have no, absolutely no uh, touching with the world. Uh, the scripture is just for you. It's devotional. And sharing with you uh, what it means 
is uh, sermonic or didactic, if that was the sole focus, what would be the danger in that? The first one is you become more scholarly and there's no relevance. second one is you become too introverted and it's all devotional and just monastic. It's just me and God. What's the third one? I'm sharing with you what it means, sermonic didactic. That's my sole focus. You want, you want them to relate to it regardless of what the actual message is. Yeah. Develop that a little bit further. Superiority that you're the teacher above everybody else. And That's it. Not relating it to yourself. Excellent. And what's the best example in the New Testament of that? Pharisee? Yep. Bang on. You become Pharisaic. So if I was if I was like this, and my sole focus was to always tell you what it means, if I'm always preaching at you, I'm going and not concerned about devotional side or the exegetical side, then I'm going to set up start setting up rules by which you need to succumb to. So there's an ulterior motive in that case. Yeah, there's an ulterior motive, but that's only if that's what the sole focus would be. So there's dangers in that, right? So there's dangers that 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 can. Um, Occur, but the human enterprise needs to be a balance of these three: exegetical, devotional, and didactic. Okay, needs to be a balance. Has to be a balance. Okay, any questions on that? Good. So that I was. Father dudes, which I have actually heard about them. So are they in history? Yep. Are they are they really the forefathers of where the monks? Yep. And forefathers of the, of the monastic movement. Yeah. Wow. What what era of time did that happen? These desert fathers. Yeah. Third and fourth century AD. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And where? Do you know where they happen to have been? I'll get you some more historical facts and let you know. Yeah, I've never heard of them before. Just Google it, there's fathers, and you'll, you'll, you'll read a little bit about them. Oh. Pole sittings. Is that the same thing, pole sitting? You know, where you hear occasionally of somebody spending... Yeah, I don't know, maybe. Oh, maybe. Same idea? Maybe the same idea, yeah. It was around, it was around Egypt. Yeah, it's around Egypt, and also went up into caves and things like that. Mm. Not just poles. There's one particular famous guy that went up a pole. Mostly it was caves. Uh, yeah, but just um, completely separate from the world. Yeah, it was about devotion. It was about becoming holy. Uh, you see it in later movements a little bit with the Wesleys. Uh, if you want to go post-Reformation, you see some of their uh, their tendencies uh, can be a little bit like that. Not to the same extreme, but there's elements of it. Seems to be all throughout the church history, isn't it? The, yeah. Do we go too far one way and too far the other way? Yeah. Uh, even back in the very early stages, there was this question about when we reach the world, when we preach at Oswald, can we use sort of uh, mix with them? How much can we mix with them? And some were going right into being so much like the world that there's hardly a difference. I've forgotten the name of them, but uh, and then others were, went back the other way. You know? Hmm. It's always been that tension. Always been that tension. How to be part of the world, but not part of the world. How we proclaim Christ and 
and that separate ourselves. Um, yeah. Okay, the process of hermeneutics. So our idea is to bridge the gap between the biblical world and our world. This is the contextualization side of things. And there's three things that I'm going to hammer over the next few weeks. Observation, interpretation, application. That's how we bridge the gap. We observe the text. We do our exegesis on the text. We spend 90% of our time doing that before we even start thinking about how to interpret the text. And then we apply the text. I would think when I, um, in my sermon preparation now, I would spend probably 50% of my sermon prep on observation, even if it's a well-known text. And then I'll try and spend 30 on application and 20 on interpretation. So if you do the observation correctly, your interpretation is going to be pretty spot on. Uh, that's just what I do personally. I know others who will spend 70% observation and 10 and 15 sort of on the balance. See, so what are the gaps that we're trying to move across? What are the gaps? There's four of them. We have a distance between the biblical text we have and where we're here in 2017. What are, what are the things we're trying to bridge? Yeah, culture's one of them. Big one. Yeah, culture. Definitely, there's a gap in cultures. What's another one? Language. Yep. Gap in language. New Testament times, we have... What was the language of the day? What was the common language of the day? Koinonia Greek, that means common Greek, Koinonia. It's no longer spoken today, but that, that's, we have, uh, that's what we have the New Testament written in. Aramaic was a definitely a strong language, but the common language was uh, Koinonia Greek. And that happened in 300 BC as Alexander swept through the world. One of his legacies was to Hellenize everybody with a common language. And there is no, no mystery about that when you think about God's purposes. All right? No mystery about that at all. Uh, that we have a New Testament in, in one language. So yeah, we've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to bridge that gap of language. We've got to look at the original autographs, or not, not, not absolutely original, but we've got to look at the Greek texts we have and bridge that gap between there and English now since. Or if you're in Spain, they're in Spanish, or they're in French. Whatever your language of the day is, you've got to bridge that gap. Um, another one would be the, the spiritual beliefs of the time, or religious. That's under culture, I would say. It'd be under culture. I was, I was thinking education. Um, when we were talking about the, the good shepherd and the lost sheep this morning, yeah. I was thinking if you try and translate that text into a culture where they don't know what sheep are, in some of your tribal type of cultures where they might not have come across particular things. How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. You'd have to use another animal. Yeah. Perhaps. Another farmed animal. Mm. 
Yeah. And then you go, go and figure out what to do with the sheep and the goats. <laughs> you want to use goats. <laughs> Shark and the dolphin. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. So you can see that. That's, that's, that's culture, it's understanding, it's language, it's geography. Geography is an important one. As we think about this gap, the distance of gap, most of this, most of our Bible, or all of our Bible, was contained in a few thousand square miles in the Middle East. Yeah? It's a considerably different geographical layout to what we have here, or in North America, or in New Zealand. Sometimes you've got to bridge that. Like when I say to you, what's a millstone? Do you know what a millstone is? So that's for milling, yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen a millstone? Mm. Yeah. Have you ever seen a millstone in Israel? Okay, so they're, they're all of a sudden I'm starting to use the geography to build it. So what, you know, by um, saying, yeah, I've seen a millstone, you might have seen a milling stone here in Australia. But in what way is that like the millstone in Israel? When Jesus says, if you cause one of my little ones to stumble, I want to chuck a millstone around your neck and throw you in the deepest of ocean, what picture do you have of that? Really big round rock. Like <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but do you actually know? Know that that's what it is? Yeah. Do you, do you, do you have, you, you will have a visual, you and I will have a visual picture of what we've seen probably locally more than what was there. So that's where you've got to bridge the gap. So instead of us knowing what our millstone is here in Israel, we've got to learn what the millstone is back in yeah. 2000 years ago in Israel. Yeah. If, you want to do, if you want to do a good job of exegesis, yeah. you've got to look at that millstone. Uh, and it's a, it's a massive thing. I was astounded at how large it was. It was pulled, pulled around by two oxen. It probably stood about this high. Okay. Had a yoke across it. So when Jesus talks about cast all your cares upon me, my yoke is easy and your burden is light, there is this picture of these oxen pulling around this millstone to consider. And... Uh, yeah, it was quite fascinating. I saw this jolly thing and I thought, wow. There's no coming back from the bottom of the ocean with a millstone around your neck. <laughs> you know, in that context. So how could I communicate that to you and I? In the 21st century, who's never seen that? You need to, you've got the concept of it. You explain, you just explain that? You did a good job. I would. I, would. I, may, I may explain that. I may explain that or I may think of what is a common thing here which we can think about it in a similar sort of way? So, be like the boat anchor. Well, yeah, <laughs> I've seen the, the, you know, the mafia, the, the concrete boots, maybe. Well, concrete boots are nothing compared with the millstones. <laughs> 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 yeah, so, so the, this is the sort of thing that, that you've got to wrestle with. You've got to wrestle with some geographical and cultural things. And the last thing you've got to wrestle with is time. So there's four of them. You've got to wrestle with time. Clearly, we've got this gap of time. That's the most common thing we've got to wrestle with. We've got to wrestle with culture, geography, and language. 
You see, an observation takes care of the biblical world. When you observe the text, when you go and get the resources, that takes care of that, that, that culture, geography and time and to a degree, language. And then our interpretation, once we've got that context, our interpretation bridges it over to the contemporary world. And out, out from that flows the application. Nathan, what are the best kind of resources to try to find out things like that? Like, what are you saying? Bible dictionaries are excellent. Um, if you've got Bible dictionaries, I, I personally use uh, Zondervan, uh, Pictorial Bible Dictionary. It's a five-volume set, not that expensive. You can look up Millstone, you'll have pictures. It'll give you a historical uh, view of that. <laughs> I never do theology by Google. Sorry, James. Theology by Google. Um, yeah, look, look um, most good Bible software programs will have good resources like that. I also have my Bible software program. A, I have the Bible dictionaries in there, but I have a, um, a pictorial uh, summary of things. So. I'll have a picture of a millstone in there. So, you know, if I was teaching that passage, I probably would fire that up and show, well, this is what it actually looks like. The picture paints a thousand words. So here it is. Here's the millstone. Uh, see, the other thing, the fascinating thing about the millstone, this is the thing I never understood. The millstone we store was for treating out olives. Okay, so uh, they would place the olives inside the, the millstone. It's a four-stage process. The first stage would... You would get your, your um, top olive oil. Second stage, you get another um, type of oil, second grade olive oil that you could use. Third stage, when they pressed the olive, you would get, um, I think, the oil for the lamp. Okay, olive oil for the lamp. And then the fourth stage was yet another really low grade oil, which I'd use for other stuff. And I didn't realise that. But then in the New Testament it talks about uh, Christ being pressed like an olive. Not exactly that word, but in his affliction. And you think, wow, not just a one-stage process. It's just an ongoing thing where this thing is happening. And uh, so it's quite impactful when we, when we um, saw that millstone and the stages of pressing and, and those sorts of things. So when Jesus talked about his affliction being like that, uh, pretty significant. There was one more thing when you talked was uh, observation, interpretation, then correlation, yeah. what application is. What part is it? Yeah, correlation is another good one. Uh, Chuck Swindoll in his latest book on uh, searching the scriptures adds that in there. We'll go... Um, yeah, observation, interpretation, correlation, application. So I was going to talk about that next week as a, another stage. Uh, I would think that my correlation and application in this sense are together. Uh, but yeah, correlation is another very good stage to put in there. Um, yeah. No, no way talking about the Jewish millstone as opposed to an Australian millstone. And then you're thinking about 
changing the context and using something relevant to Australia, like wrapping a hole around your neck. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you just, just, instead of changing the context and the shape of the objects, wouldn't you, isn't it just safer to just go back to what a Jewish tombstone is and you just use that, regardless of the culture? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's where, as as communicators of truth, uh, you, you can use that, but as long as you bridge it so people understand the significance of it, you know, that's the difference. Sometimes, if we just look at, we've got to we've got to have that significance of a. The millstone might not be the best example, but you know, it, it is a significantly large object. So when Jesus was pouring out. Uh, a curse and judgment upon the people for leading his people astray. He was using a fairly large object to say, "This is what's going to be like my judgment." And uh, yeah, so you can, yeah, absolutely. I agree. I got, you know, I, I prefer to use what we've got in the original context, but there's got to be a point in time that some of those things are just not understood. Well, I don't know if you remember several weeks ago when we did "I Am the True Vine." Uh, and we talked about grapevines in, in uh, Israel versus grapevines in Australia. That's a significant contextual thing you have to unearth. Okay, so the grapevine in Israel is on the ground. Okay, it's not on a trellis like we have in Yarra Valley. It was on the ground. And the, the vine dresser would go along and he would, after the fruit started forming, it was on the ground for many reasons, so the, the leaves could cover the fruit in a very hot and hard place, so that moisture would be maintained. Different viticulture to what we understand, but significant spiritual insight. Because then he says, I'm going to prune and I'm going to lift up. I'm going to cut off. And cut off could either lift up or remove. It's got two options. And you won't understand that unless you... You draw that, and that, that's more significant than probably a millstone thing. Okay, so what's he actually saying here? Well, you can't lose your salvation. You either weren't part of the vine, you're going to be cut off, or you're actually unfruitful and you're going to be lifted up to be able to, to bear fruit. So, yeah, those sorts of things yeah, you, you can move with um, on that. Okay. Um, I just want to refer to those charts that we've got there. You've got um, the hermeneutical triad. That's what that one's called by Kostenberger, where he breaks the, the hermeneutics into three areas, theology, history, and literature. And uh, we'll work through some of this uh, over the weeks to come. And then you also have the one down the bottom is, is Osborne, where he looks at the difference between exegesis, biblical theology, and systematic theology. The one thing I don't like about this particular chart is it's got no uh, concern for historical theology. Okay. Historical theology is something we can learn from and should always be part of our hermeneutical process. In our church tradition, we have not paid a lot of attention to historical theology. No. You mean the creeds? Oh, yeah, anything, anything prior to 2015. <laughs> okay. 
26th day. We're at 27th. Anything prior to 26th day, what are we going to look at historically? Now, historical theology tends to be the first 1300 years up to Reformation. Okay. So, that's okay, but predominantly the first 800 years. They would consider the, the age of the apostolic fathers and their writings and, and, and uh, the debates they've had, the councils they did to, to, to solve theology, uh, theological issues. So I, I think to improve Osborne's chart on the bottom there, there needs to be historical theology go back and forward across the whole process. Okay. You use, uh, for instance, uh, views of Christ. Christology, unless you're reading Athanasius, unless you're reading uh, the three Capriotians, you really haven't got a concept of what Christology is. These guys that lived in 381 AD, the guys that stood up against Arius and says, no, your view on who Christ is is just so wrong. You're a heretic now. Put your head on the block and we'll cut it off. You know, the way they handled it probably wasn't well, but the, the reality is they wrestled with these issues of who Christ was in a, in a way that was significant. And we need, as people who love the Lord, as people who want to understand theology and interpretation, we need to be interacting with some of these materials. Or... If you don't, and most of us won't have the ability to interact with them at a primary, primary language level, but we can get very good abridged English versions of what was said. Yeah, it's no doubt we, we learn from them, we stand upon their, their learning and their, their understanding. But yeah. the, to be that, always subject to their understanding. They're not a good context to look at the scriptures with because um, it's afterwards. Yeah. Right. We, we come to an understanding and then, of course, we reflect on what they've brought to. They, I mean, if it's vastly different from one, maybe somewhere we've gone wrong. But sometimes they could be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, but it still doesn't stop the fact that we should look. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. To, we should look. I didn't say heavily rely on it because then, then what, what happens is you will get a church tradition like the Greek Orthodox. I'll use the Greek Orthodox, where the Apostolic Fathers is equal to Scripture. Okay, so but that, that's pretty much stated. And you know that in the Greek Greek Orthodox Church, that the traditions of both are hold an equal balance when it comes to interpretation and theology. And we say, no, we'd be more reformed than that. We say, no, the soul of Scripture, the Scripture alone, the authority of Scripture, that's what we're going to base our theology on. Okay, so it's, uh, yeah. But I was just making the note that neither um, the, the theology in uh, Kostenberger's triad does cover historical theology, but in Osborne, he and his little diagram here needs to be sitting in there somewhere. I like Osborne's diagram because it, it has a flow to it. The exegesis controls the interpretation of your text. It controls your biblical theology. Your exegesis shows 
that through history how it's developed, or your biblical illustration through history how it's developed, and then your systematic becomes the crowning pinnacle of that triangle, which enables you to draw some theological conclusions across all texts. Okay, so we've got um, about another 10 minutes to go to finish this sheet, which I will continue with uh, because I think it's important that we just try and finish this off and then we can start afresh uh, next week on looking at genres and uh, looking at basic Bible study interpretation methods. So give you some tools to actually work with as you, as you go through. I just thought I'd, I'd just give you a little bit of a history of biblical exegesis. Who were the first uh, exegetes? Got missing. Who were the first biblical exegetes we have in the context of the Bible? Yeah, that's good. What about before that? Those dodgy Pharisees. Yeah, the dodgy Pharisees, the rabbis, the priests, Ezra, Nehemiah. You've got original exegetes, haven't you? You've got original guys that have, have taken God's word and have explained it to the people. Moses. Read the book of Deuteronomy, that's what he's doing all the time. He's, a, he's giving the second law, he's, he's, which is the same as the first law, but he's reinterpreting it in sermonic form. So you've got those guys, and when we come to the New Testament, we have um, we have these scribes and Pharisees, we have their rivals, the Sadducees. On the fringe, we have a bunch of blokes called the Essenes. Further removed with the Samaritans, and further removed again with the Jews of the Diaspora or dispersion. Who's where was their great centre of learning? Hmm? Alexandria, yeah. Great centre of learning. And uh, so we have, that's the original exegetes. This is really quite concerning. Ah, I found my page. <laughs> quite concerning. So, uh, amongst the Pharisees, there were two rival schools. So this would be like today, we'd have Ridley College and MST, <laughs> rival schools, <laughs> one A-mill, one pre-mill. So it's a bit of a rival school like that. Uh, I'm not sure if MST is pre-mill, so I better take that back from the tape. <laughs> oh, and we'll talk about, okay, we'll talk, I know once that is uh, pre-mill, we'll talk about Master's Seminary and, and uh, maybe the Reformed Theological Seminary in Westminster. They'd be rival in, in those areas. Uh, but during Jewish times, you had two rival schools among the Pharisees. You had a conservative one, which was uh, Shemael, and you had a more liberal one called Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. Okay, so you had this, this ongoing, this is the way we're going to interpret Scripture, and you had that liberal conservative thing starting way back then. So it's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> okay. um, Sadducees, what did they believe? What was the major thing that they differed from? No resurrection. Okay, so they had a view of uh, what was going on in Scripture, but there is no resurrection, so they did funny things with Daniel 12. 
pretty much. Who else amongst uh, the Jews we have with the Essenes? Now, what's significant about the Essenes? Well, they had a community at Puma. Correct. It um, actually stored uh, mostly wrote and collected the, the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have today. Yep. So these guys removed themselves from Jerusalem. They went down the road and, and lived on the shores of the Dead Sea. Uh, overlooked the Dead Sea, looking east. Yeah, looking east. And they had these caves and they had this little centre where they would cleanse themselves and wash themselves and copy out scripture. They weren't just copying out scripture though. Um, they had a huge amount of a written tradition about how you should please God. Uh, they had a, a big tendency to spiritualize scripture. Okay, we'll talk about that. And most of their writing had a great deal to do about Jewish eschatology. So the day of the Lord, end times, how that would unfold, and that was the Essenes. And then we have the Jewish diaspora. When did they end up in Alexandria? Do you know? Have a guess. Have another guess. <laughs> the Spora moved in 586 BC. Okay, so when when Jerusalem was sacked by Nebuchadnezzar, and they, most of them went to Babylon, there was a portion of the, the rabbis and the, and those sorts of uh, folk that ended up in Alexandria. So that's when the diaspora started. The Jewish diaspora started there, 586. The centre of learning, uh, one of the significant things that was produced in Alexandria was the Septuagint. Do you know what the Septuagint is? Yeah. Yeah, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, so that's where this was produced. Uh, they, they produced that there. Uh, the key figure that we know and understand is uh, Philo. He was 20 BC through to 50 AD. And another, who's another famous historian that we quote often about New Testament times? Josephus. Josephus. Joe. I can't never say his name. Someone help me out. Josephus. Josephus. That's it. Josephus. So he was um, part of this community as well in Alexandria. Yeah. Now, um, I'm going to give you just a rundown of Jewish interpretation methods because this becomes very important when it comes to exegesis. You may think, Nathan, you're just going off the deep end here. I'm not, because this is really important. And there's some methods that these uh, traditional interpretation methods... You've got the uh, the Targums, T-A-R-G-U-M-S. Okay, so this, uh, by the time of Jesus, Aramaic was the, the common language of Palestine and Hebrew was understood only by a few educated minority. So what was happening is the Targums are the Aramaic version of the Hebrew text so the common people could understand. Uh, so that's just that initial interpretation from Hebrew 
to Aramaic. So if you ever see anything citing the, the Targums, they've gone back and they've looked at the Aramaic to try and understand what the Old Testament talks about. Most New Testament scholars will go back to the Septuagint and look at the Greek. So by you know the early early uh, first century, you had the Old Testament in in um, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. You had the three language languages. Then you have Midrash. Now. Midrash it was a, a system of interpreting. Uh, it was a major Jewish term used for interpretation or explanation of the text. It was how rabbis and teachers sought to explain the significance of biblical text for the first century Jewish people. Uh, the belief was that there were meanings that went beyond the obvious and got to the true heart of the text. This was the goal of Midrash. And uh, so, as I've said that, what's the danger in that? Reading too much into it. Yeah. So, in our hermeneutical world that we live now, what we're trying to get to is that if it makes common sense, seek no other sense. If you read a, the language for what it is, if you read sentences and structures of sentences for what it is, if it makes common sense, why would you seek another sense? That's lunacy. Midrashian interpretation was always trying to add some other meaning that was not obvious to the normal person. It wasn't obvious but was meant to be the true meaning of the text. And they uh, employed a couple of, three different ways of doing this Midrashic interpretation. Pesha, P-E-S-H-E-R, and typology, which uh, the term was census plenior. P-L-E-N-O-I-R, census plenior. And then eventually allegory. I'll just briefly give you some of that. The Pesha interpretation was a lot of that was at uh, Quran. And... Uh, the Essenes used it a lot in their sort of Jewish interpretation of what was going to happen on the day of the Lord. Uh, it was mystical, uh, and they would... Uh, it was really only limited by imagination, which is not good exegesis. Uh, and allegory was also wound into that in, in quite a strong way. Once again, it was used extensively at Qumran. Philo was famous for his allegorical readings of the Old Testament, uh, where he tried to show the Hebrew scriptures were compatible with or even superior to Hellenistic thought. Uh, he, so he... 
There is a place for allegory in Scripture. Where is the place for allegory in Scripture? I can only think of one. What's that? Galatians, yeah. Where, where Paul says, this is an allegory. Uh, he talks about Sarah, Hagar, the two covenants, grace and law. Uh, but that was a, a problem with some of the, the Jewish interpretation methods. They use typology a lot, and that's the idea of a promise and fulfilment. The Old Testament is a promise that looks to its fulfilment in the New Testament. That gets at the heart of the debate. We do, but should we? That's the question in our exegesis. What's about any of these things, allegory, um, typology or whatever, is used correctly or within... That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about boundaries, setting and that, because I think we have, we can actually go off the reservation with some of this stuff.